Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Pat Hazel. And today is a very special episode of Creativity in Captivity on Ice. As I speak with a two-time Emmy award-winning director, choreographer, and figure skater known for her television specials and touring productions. She has worked with all the greats on skates from Peggy Fleming and Scott Hamilton to Michelle Kwan and Victor Petrenko. Her film credits include choreography for Blades of Glory, Go Figure, and I, Tanya. Coming up is one of the nicest on ice, Sarah Kawahara. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free or captive to a mystery. The curse of creativity. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. Hi, Pat. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. I'm happy to be home. Yeah, you've been on the road a bit. I saw a picture on Facebook of you. It looked like maybe at the White House or somewhere like that. We had an extraordinary 24 hours, uh, my husband and I. Uh, our daughter, Haley Kiyoko, is a pop star, singer, songwriter, actress. And uh, she was invited to Kamala Harris's private residence to be the entertainer. And she was the only entertainer. She closed the night. She sang three songs. It was the first LGBTQ plus uh, event ever held at the vice president's home. And so it was very, very, very memorable. Yeah, that's great. And Haley's got a new album out called Panorama. So I'll mention that now to help sell albums for her. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> she released two new singles and, and the album's coming out in July the end of July. So yeah, we're all very excited about it. Well, I guess we'll start there in that you have a household full of creative people. So your daughter is a pop singer and an actress, and your husband, I know from his days of being a comedian and now the author of a book. What is that like to be at that table? With Do you have other kids as well? Yes, I have three children. Elise uh, is my oldest, and she actually, she's a mom. I'm a grandma. She's made me a grandma. Baby May is three years old, and she's been a delight to our family. And my son, uh, Thatcher, he is an assistant manager at the Hillcrest Country Club. He has some great views from the golf course. And so when I'm out on the ship, I send him pictures, photos of, of the ocean, and he sends me photos of the golf course with the sunrises, and mine are the sunsets. So between us, we cover the day. <laughs> well, why don't you give the audience some context? Why are you on ships so frequently? Well, I direct and choreograph ice shows for Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. We have 15 shows on 12 ships. It is real ice, 60 by 40 uh, surface, and it's presented arena style. And they're wonderful fantasy variety ice shows. They're about 40 minutes long, and people seem to love them. Every six months, we change the cast, and that infuses new energy and new talent into the show. So it's like a new show every six months. And you know from being a skater yourself that the afterlife of competition is to get into these kinds of programs, to travel with the ice capades or to do something on a cruise ship that extends sort of the career of an ice skater? Very much so. When you're a competitive skater, there's 
you know, very few become the Olympic champions and the world champions. And there, there are a lot of wonderfully skilled skaters and performers out there. So we like to take them into the land of show. There's Holiday on Ice in Europe. There's Disney on Ice in North America. And on the ships, we sail all over the entire globe. There are so many wonderful tours that skaters can uh, be a part of, and it gives them a whole avenue of performance that they maybe would not have experienced just solely in the competitive world or and then moving on simply to teaching, which, you know, teaching is very admirable and you can do it after you perform or before you perform. So when was the advent of ice rinks being put on ships? Like there must have been a moment where somebody said, this is a good idea for this sort of entertainment and you say it's done in a forum or stadium style. Do you remember when that first came about? 1999 was the first ship that had ice. We were there, my producer, Willie B. Tech Productions, and myself, we, were, we produced the first ice show. So we've been with them a long time. And was that a themed show around music or was it of Champions on Ice Best Of? You know, what was fun about it was we had live musicians. Mm. We had a band on an elevator in the back of the stage, and then there's a thrust stage that goes out 60 feet. There's an actual stage behind it, which is about 20 feet. So it's a nice presentation, and we had a variety show with a competitive edge to it with two teams, and we really presented it like a variety show. It was a nice departure for the ships to get a show like that. I bet it probably felt like a very sophisticated form of entertainment on the ocean. I think so. I think so. I mean, with live music mixed with canned music, you know, there was some pre-records. But it was great because the level of skating is very representative of the time. So, you know, we have, like for today, the there are skaters doing triple jumps and big lifts and big throws and, and all, all the elements that you would be accustomed to see in a large stage, ice stage, but we can do it all on a small ice stage. So let me ask you about that in terms of, the, let's say, the danger or the accident factor, because ice is very hard and people fall, or they hit their knee or they hit their elbow. Are there understudies for everybody in these shows or... Like if you're getting into that more advanced material, what's the accident rate? They're all very skilled, so the accident rate is pretty small. You really assemble an ensemble so that everybody understudies each other. It's a small cast of 12, some cast are cast of 10, but within the 10 or 12, Every spot is covered kind of like a round robin, and you would understudy each other. And uh, if there were injuries, of course, any long-term injuries, we would get somebody else in as a replacement for a short period of time. It really exercises the uh, creativity and the, the skill of the skater when they have to do other numbers that they were not originally cast in. It broadens their horizon. So how do you approach that as a choreographer when you think of a new show theme? Do you get inspired by something and then run it by the team and say, we're going to go this way next season? Or how do you approach that? Sometimes it's inspired by a piece of music. 
that you would really want to use and and you use that as the departure point and another time it's about a story and we're not product tied so we can really go anywhere so we are not the company that does the Hercules we are the company that could do the Hans Christian Andersen or we could do Spirits of the Season or we we have a show called 1887 and that's a pure fantasy of a character named Tempest who is a time traveler we really can go anywhere and with the audiences on the ships they're there for vacation and they just want to be swept away so it's really nice for us to have that freedom well it seems neat for you to be able to use skating as part of your design element in all you do because it's it's a pretty unique way to tell a story this varies from probably your early life which was a lot of practice and then some competition and then maybe some performance but now you're the one with the vision so can you tell me a little bit about how you transitioned from one to the other, from being just a great skater to this seat of being a director and choreographer? Well, I was in the ice capades as a principal skater for eight years, and I really loved it. It was like food to eat and air to breathe for me. I just really thrived on it. But I saw that, you know, I wouldn't be able to do it forever, and I, I knew I needed to be able to somehow transition into an area where I could still satisfy that thirst that I was so satisfied by performance. So choreography to me seemed like the natural area to shoot for. But when I approached the producer of the Ice Capades at the time, Bob Turk, he just really wanted to keep me as a performer and he didn't want to let me go. I mean, I was willing to work for free. I would apprentice. I would do anything for him, but he just didn't want to let me in that door so I left <laughs> he said you know another thing about you is that your movement is so unique I don't think you could get other people to do it it was a great challenge that I was willing to step up to and I knew I was a good teacher I could break it down I knew how to break it down so I thought well I'm going to go out there and get some experience. So I did, and I was very lucky because uh, in the very beginning, um, Peggy Fleming was looking for a new choreographer. She saw me perform my last year in the Ice Capades, and she thought that my style would line up with hers. So she approached me. So <laughs> right out of the gate, I was just really, really lucky. And she asked me if I'd do a number for her that she was going to guest star in the Ice Capades. And so I did, and then that began our relationship. I ended up choreographing for her for Harris Lake Tahoe, which was a headliner show. In those days, you know, like the Shirley MacLaine show or the Juliet Proust show or the Anne Margaret show, they would play Caesar's Palace or, or Harris Lake Tahoe, or, and Peggy Fleming did that. And we put an ice on the stage, a 60 by 40 stage-wise, with the proscenium. And we did a, a headliner show that showed other facets of her. And also she brought on a comedian. And that was actually how I met my husband, Jamie Alcroft of Mac and Jamie, because they were her guest act comedy act and they walked out in their patent leather shoes with spikes on the bottom and they did their act <laughs> oh so they didn't skate they didn't skate oh no that i guess that would have been more of a comedy than it already was but not as good a comedy <laughs> but uh that was really truly how how we met 
the show was later picked up by Harris Lake Tahoe for a, an extended run, a three-month run. I took her roles and split them up between three of us, and, and it became a production show. Mac and Jamie were brought back for another five weeks of the run, and that's when we uh, started to go out and fell in love, and we've been together ever since. <laughs> right. Romance on ice. I know. Uh -huh. That's great. And I know that Mac and Jamie had a great run on television. I grew up in the Omaha, Nebraska area, and I used to see their late night comedy break show. So you're covering dance, choreography, directing, music, comedy. You kind of have your own home studio there between the group. Yeah, we do. It's 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 fun. I've, I've always been a, attracted to the arts as, as a child. I, I painted and I uh, played the piano and I took ballet lessons and I took drama and you know I'm an only child so my parents let me taste everything and then little did I know that one day it would all come together and I would be able to use all those things that I tasted it was probably one of the most outstanding memories I have about using something that I learned from my childhood is when I worked on an opera show for the Royal Opera House in Oman. We had the Prague Philharmonic and we had a conductor from London. I had to look at scores and like normally I would just edit the music with it, work with the music editor and I'd edit the music down and it never came in more handy than when I worked on that opera show. He made me look at the scores and double check the edits and it wasn't like I had made the edits uh, digitally. It was just really interesting to be able to draw on every iota. <laughs> of memory I had of, of my music knowledge. So that was great fun. It does come in handy when you move to a level of leadership, when you're a director or a choreographer or a producer, it's important that you understand the language and the culture and all of the things that come with those different disciplines. And you can't get it without dabbling in many of them along the way. I think some people who are amazing that have a niche thing, find themselves in a compromised position when somebody asks them to look at a piece of music. or And in your case, I'm fascinated by the idea that you probably often have to arrange the music because of the speed of what's going on. Skating is quite a bit different than other kinds of movement or choreography. It's a pretty quick-paced art. Yes, it is. Well, there's speed. You're dealing with speed, velocity, and therefore tempos. Tempo is very important. It's very important. Gosh, I remember we did, for Hairs Like Tahoe, we did a Rhapsody in Blue. It was an ensemble piece with stars. I had Dorothy Hamill, and I had Ty and Randy, and I had Scott Hamilton in it, in our cast, and it was just a very important piece. And the orchestra played it too slow. It was killing us. It was just killing us. It was a funny situation. And Eliza Minnelli came to the show that night, and she came backstage, and she uh, spoke to Brian Farnan, the conductor, and he said, do these skaters a favor and let them skate faster. <laughs> it was the funniest thing ever. I mean, we were dying out there. It was really, really tough, because especially when you're on a small ice surface. You know, you're not in a big ice surface, you're in a small ice surface, so everything is sculpted. It's, it's sculpted, and the velocity could only take so much speed to cover the ice before you run out of ice. And choreographically, it's been designed at a certain tempo. 
<laughs> were they able to learn and catch up with that on you or was it frustrating? They did. I mean, it was hard because it's sometimes like we've done that same piece with a soul pianist, no orchestra, just a soul pianist with a pianist in the middle of the stage playing Rhapsody in Blue. And so sometimes it'll do the opposite. It'll go too fast. <laughs> it'll go too fast. And everybody's... <laughs> just gliding and leaping in fast forward. It's pretty interesting. And then sometimes the skaters will interact with the pianist and kind of <laughs> give them a, a, a conductor-like nod, you know, for, for tempo. And that really helps marry the two. And that's probably the best situation. Because a lot of times the skaters are very musical. Most of the times they're very musical. And they have to communicate in front of an audience when the performance isn't quite right, well, how to pace it up or how to bring it down. That's a, that's interesting to watch for that communication. Yes, it is. <laughs> now, you mentioned Scott Hamilton earlier, and I know that you went on to do television specials with him. Is that where you made the transition to, to doing TV specials? Oh, that's I never really thought about my first TV special. I started to do TV specials before I met Scott Hamilton. I did variety for Rick Mill Productions I did, and I did A Wizard of Oz on Ice, and I did Disney's Greatest Hits, which was a compilation of Ice stars, and, and it was assembled by Kimber Rickabow, who was a producer, and she brought me in for that. And then also I did uh, Nancy Kerrigan on ice and I did Michelle Kwan. I did Mul the Mulan special, which was really extra exciting because Mulan hadn't come out yet. The animated feature hadn't come out yet. So it was going to be in front of. So I got to go to the studio and see the unfinished movie, which is fascinating because there's parts of it that are finished and then there are parts of it that are still pictures and their drawings and their sketches and then there's a placeholder and then the music is scored underneath. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I love that stuff. We got to tell the story through skating and they brought in different actors and, and stars and Michelle was the played Mulan. We did a lot of really interesting TV specials in that time. And uh, Scott Hamilton, for me, his TV special was my first Emmy Award. I was lucky enough to be able to create that with him, for him, but I had some experience before I got to that moment. And I was, thankfully, it came to me at the right time in my career. So that first Emmy Award, that's not something you saw in your future when you were skating in Canada. An Emmy is a television award. So how did that feel to receive that? I never thought in a million years that that would be part of my life. I, it was never a goal. The philosophy in my family was do the very best you can, give 200%, work really hard, and keep your head down and go for it. But uh, it was never, you, you need to go to the Olympics. Wouldn't it be great if you won a gold medal? I, it was, I, that was never the philosophy in my family. So I didn't, wasn't brought up that way. And then competitively, I never won a big title. I was one of the worker bees. <laughs> Just competing and, and loving it and enjoying it. And I was 22nd in Canada, 22nd <laughs> in senior Canadians. <laughs> yeah, but I can say this, and this is a compliment to Canada, 
that they celebrate that as much as they celebrate first and second place. Because I was once, I think I was in Vancouver during an Olympics once, the Canadian audience in the bar cheered for eighth place and 10th place Canadians. In America, they're so centered around winning and the gold that yeah. if a person gets a silver, they kind of look down their nose at them. And I think that's not quite right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That's nice that you observed that. Yeah, it was the Summer Olympics, and I just remember they had a crew ship that was like 10th, and they went crazy when they finished, and they were so happy for them. And I was happy, too. I was like, this is so much better than creating this sort of all-or-nothing strategy. It's just, I think, an awkward thing when competition supersedes the discipline and the artistry and the uh, devotion. The difference between first and fourth place in a running race sometimes is... Less than a second. Yeah. So how is that so much different? It's not. The fourth place guy doesn't even get a medal and he's a hundred times faster than me. I just think it's interesting that you win a TV award with a background in ice skating and choreography. That For me, that's like a comedian and suddenly they give me a prize for the British Bake Off. <laughs> I, I would be startled by it. But you did mention the competition. So I want you to just tell me the difference between practicing and competition. That heightened sense of responsibility or urgency that comes that makes it so much more difficult to compete than just to practice your routines? I think the hardest thing for me was I would get nervous. When I was young, up till I guess I was maybe 14 or so, I was just a hot skater. Everything was I was doing really well. And then I started to get really nervous. Going from practice, I could do anything in practice, but then I, when I went to the competition and you had to deliver on the moment, it is he who can deliver on the moment that becomes the champion, truly. And knowing how to emerge yourself into what you do with such a tunnel vision that you forget everything else around you and you can produce and if you can do that you are it but in those days you know we didn't really have sports psychologists and we didn't really have that kind of mental training to make you have that steel plate that I've observed in every Olympic and world champion I've ever worked with that you know they they have that in common those people and it's it's tremendous but I do think that it, you can be trained and you can learn it to a certain degree I just was never trained that way I was trained to be an artist I was trained to you doing that great let's change it <laughs> don't be satisfied with doing something great let's make it better let's make it different why not do it this way think of it this way and, which was terrific for grooming me to be an artist it wasn't terrific to groom me to be a champion but that was never the point for me and so when I joined the ice capades I, a talent scout saw me when I was 22nd in Canada and they said oh we want you to audition I think it's going to be a good fit my coach set up the audition. I, my dad drove me to Saginaw, Michigan in a snowstorm blizzard, and we got there, and I auditioned, and I got the spot. Nice. I was a nobody, an absolute nobody, and I got a spot, a solo spot in the Ice Capades. How long did you stay with the Ice Capades? I was there for eight years. Then I transitioned into choreography, and I kept performing until I 
was 35 until I had my second child. I kept performing. So I did both. You know, I didn't, it took a while to, to get established and I didn't know if it, it was going to stick, if I was really going to be able to, to carve out a career as a choreographer. And I mean, I was doing it, but I was still performing and I was, people liked what I did because I was an artistic performer and so I was able to sell both sides of my coin for a long time and then after I had my second child which was Haley I decided that I could maybe do it I could maybe just be a choreographer and then TV came along and that was I, I just love working with a camera I loved working with the facets and the angles and the and the point of view and and how do we see it best and how are we going to feel the speed and I just love that whole point of view of how to make you feel what we do you the audience yeah that's a really really interesting aspect of it is that you're uniquely positioned to know where this jump looks best or where this landing looks best. And you've gone on to do that with television, but also film. And I think the most intriguing one, of course, was the I, Tanya movie where you did some choreography for Margot Robbie. And that had to be somewhat true to the era and the style and all of that. So how did you approach, you know, your choreography in that particular piece? Well, it was really like doing a documentary for me. I mean, I researched it. It wasn't about me making what Tanya do better uh, and look better. It wasn't about that. It was about laterally moving and transposing it onto the actress, Margot Robbie, who had to learn to skate from scratch. She worked really, really hard, and I needed to be able to take the choreography that existed that actually was and duplicate it to the best of my ability and yet make it fit Margot's body. Cause you know, everybody moves slightly different no matter how little or how much training they have. So as a choreographer, the key is to be able to tap into how are they going to be able to execute it to the best of their ability and still look authentic. So that would include their the weight distribution and what parts of their body are long or short or right in terms of what choices you make? Oh, absolutely. Margot's tall. She's 5'6", and Tanya was 5'2". Interesting. That's a different proportion. And in addition to her skating, how many doubles did you have or folks that needed to do like the big moves? I had two doubles. It was really uh, a fun thing to cast because I had one double from the East Coast and one double from the West Coast, and they were both trained by different different people. And I, but they were the the right body type. You know, it, it had to not only be could you do a triple lutz, and how good was your double axel? Because I couldn't get it in those days. I couldn't get a triple axel like a diamond dozen like you can today. There, uh, it's it was very difficult. So. Um, but you had to find the right body type as well that would that would match. So it was it was really fun to exercise that part of my brain. <laughs> Did you end up using the I'll call it camera tricks, but essentially a way that if you needed that triple axle, then you were able to sort of identify moving the camera. That was the only jump that we had uh, to use the camera technique in order to get the extra rotation. Both girls had a really good double axle. They were, and it was shot in really tight to the feet. And then a wider shot across camera for the rotation, and then on the landing. It was really interesting to see how we would do it as 
authentically as we could, knowing that it had to be a, a camera trick. But then what sold it was Margot's, you know, she did the landing position and she stepped forward and she did that ebullient sell that Tanya did when she had landed it and it was so perfect. I mean, they used it on the poster. It, it was fantastic. Margot was amazing, just an amazing actress to work with. Did you work with her on learning to skate and do all of that from the get-go, from the moment she started skating, or did she do some skating alone before she came to you? I think when she was a teenager, like when she was 14 or something, she did some hockey. Oh, okay. But she hadn't skated in a very long time, and she'd never done um, figure skates. But she took to it quite naturally, and she was a really good student, and she has really good visual learning capability. She can study I mean, I would make videotapes every day of our work together, and she would study it and come back better. She has that kind of talent. So it was great, very gratifying to, to work with her. Well, I want to just sort of address also, you got a second Emmy Award when you did the choreography for the opening ceremonies of the 2002 Olympic Winter Games in Salt Lake City. You're dealing with an awful big cast in that situation, aren't you? Oh yes, it was cast of over a thousand people. Yeah, it was it was the most amazing, tremendous event I have ever had the pleasure of working on for two years. It took two years to work on it, and casting it was we stripped the community of anybody that could skate forward. Is <laughs> that when I first went to to do the auditions, I had you know all these highfalutin ideas of oh can they can they do this can they do that this. And, that. and then all of a sudden I realized the most important thing I can ask them is, can you stop? Oh. Because if you can't stop, it's a domino effect. So it was a, <laughs> it was a funny realization to, to come to. And it was very humbling. It was a very humbling <laughs> thought yeah. to have. And I put them through obstacle courses. And it wasn't whether they can do a rocker or a three-turn or an axle or even skate backwards. They have to skate forward and they have to be able to stop. <laughs> Yeah, I I, that makes me laugh so much because it's almost like before you get to the main auditions, the first call is two questions. Can you skate? Can you stop? Right? And if they can't, yeah, it's right. like, go to the next room. I just want to see the people who can stop. It's funny to me because I made out these audition forms with all these criteria on it. And at the very bottom... After my first set of auditions, I would audition see 10 people at a time, and I had a big, long table, and, and it was just so funny because then I realized almost instantaneously was that, can you stop? That should have been at the top, at the top. Right. Not at the bottom, but at the top. It's pretty funny. Yeah. When I was a kid and we were sledding or doing anything on a hill, that was the problem with the saucer is you could not stop. And so you would go off into a river, you would go into a tree. That saucer was the skater that can't stop, basically. Yeah, that's so neat. You know, uh, when my first ice show of my life, when I was like six, I was in a flying saucer. <laughs> really? I was a green, green Martian in a flying saucer. Yeah, it was very poetic. Oh, well, that is poetic. The thing that fascinates me about this business that you're in, it's got these extreme balances between a very athletic and requires a lot of stamina to the artistic side, which is the dance and the flow and the 
seemingly ease that it's all done with when you watch it in performance or in competition. It's a very unique combination of things that require that athleticism and then the poise to seem like it's effortless. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that separates the good from the not so good. <laughs> it's, can you make it look effortless? I like how you don't call anybody bad. I like that you call them the not so good. Well, it was in my head, but it didn't come out that way, right? Yeah, that shows some decorum. There are probably people who can do these tricks that can't communicate to their face that it's not difficult. You have to go beyond being a technician. You have to go beyond showing how difficult something is and giving the aura and the persona that it's something that perhaps it's not, but it, it can be. You can make me believe that. Oh, it looks so effortless and so easy and so light. You don't need to take all that grimacing on your face or biting your lip or, you know, lifting your shoulders or making fists in the air when you pull in and all that stuff. It just shows that you're, um, that you're still not beyond the technique of what you do. So when you are a director choreographer, once you have this dream and it's happening and you have a cast, you're probably thinking about, in addition to music arrangement, which you talked about earlier, costume design, how does this stuff flow? What is the props or set pieces? And does that have to be on something that can travel on ice? And are you involved in all of that as well? I'm very involved in every aspect from costuming to the set design and how does it move? How quickly can I move it? What is the physics of the dress? I often work with the costume to bring out the best of the costume and to marry the choreography to the costume because that's one of the biggest faults for a lot of people is that they, they get the costume sketch and it's over there and then you're doing your choreography over here and you're so tunnel visioned and so self-absorbed in your choreography and you think, oh, well, we're just going to put that costume on top of it and that's the biggest mistake you can make because you will never be able to marry the two together to do justice to the costumes and thereby justice to the choreography unless you consider it together. And I do that with the set pieces and, and props. I love working with props. I like that, to have that extra dimension to bring into what I do. And I think it just makes a picture stronger. There's just so much to consider. It's a lot. It's a lot that goes into it to rehearse and to design and to work with and then to deal with the reality of the set. I'm going back on the ship on the Wonder of the Seas to put in a new production number uh, with bicycles. I've got six bicycles that, with LED lights on them and, and I have four LED whips. In them. And at the time when we opened, they weren't ready yet. From COVID, we were over in Europe and we just didn't get all the set designs constructed yet. So now we're going back over in August and I will complete the show. But the show's up and running with, with only one set piece. And there's just so much more that goes into it. But everybody's happy. I was able to, to make the picture strong and look like it was meant to be. But it was really a lot simpler than it's going to be. <laughs> Do those bicycles have special treads on them? or They have spikes. We put spikes on the bottom. You know, like on your tires, on your snow tires, yeah. Sure. Well, that must be fun to watch. When you escape from the ice, when you're home, what kinds of things are your go-to creative things? I saw you and Haley making some sushi the other day in a YouTube video. Is that something that you do frequently or for the holidays or what? 
Well, making sushi is something I do for the holidays or for special occasions because it is a lot of work. <laughs> it is a lot of work, and it's a fun thing to share with the family or with friends rather than just make it for yourself because there's so many ingredients that go into it. I love to go to the ocean. I love to walk on the ocean, on the beach. And I love to paint, and I play piano, and I like to be in nature. So what kind of painting do you do? Watercolor paint, acrylics? I do watercolors. You know, I'm not a trained painter, artist. I'm just, uh, I did it in school. You know, after high school, I was going to see if I could take fine arts in university. And we weren't connected in any way to people in, in the arts. And I just didn't know what I would do for a job. <laughs> but I was quite accomplished uh, as far as skating, though I wasn't a champion. I was still, I had skill in skating. So I thought, well, I'll audition for the ice capades. And, and if I get a spot, then I'll go. And if I don't, then I'll go to school. But I got a spot. So I went. I was 17. At 17, my dad let me go. <laughs> you must have been pretty disciplined, though, in your skating to be as good as you were. I was the child that got up at 5 in the morning and went to uh, skate before school. And I was the child that came to school at 1 o'clock, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and was able to keep up our grades. I was that kid. But I loved it. I loved it, you know, and my dad was willing to take me. My coach was willing to bring me back while he was at work, and everything lined up for me to make that pursuit. Right, and that is a bit of privilege for any of us that have family support or coach support where our dream can be realized because of just the drop-off and pick-up people sometimes. That's a big deal, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or even an ice rink in your community. Now, Canada, for many parts of the year, is an ice rink, so everybody <laughs> skates in Canada, but there are places where people can't get to a formal rink or whatever. Pick the art. If you don't have supplies or you don't have somebody to guide you or to even give you a little self-confidence by saying you're kind of good at that, I find that that's it's really important to have creative champions. Yes, that's very well put, to have creative champions. I like that. And I mean, in many ways, your daughter seeing what her family did to see that you could pursue something that kind of unfolded for you from skating to ice capades to television to film to all these theatrical elements on ship. The passion and the discipline override what it is, the specific kind of thing that you're doing. That's transferable. And your daughter applies it to songwriting and to acting. And I guess that's what I would say for our listener is it doesn't really matter what you choose. You still have to love it. You still have to want to do it and lose sleep over it. And you still have to not care what others think about you when everybody else is doing something different. It doesn't mean you should stop what you love. Absolutely. It's, it's the passion that will pull you through. One can only hope that there's someone in your life that can help you realize that and support you. If you were to give a piece of advice to a young person in the arts of any kind, what kind of thing would you recommend? Gosh, I think to pursue your art is not to just pursue the art that you're interested in, but to cast your eyes on the other arts and let the other arts also help feed and inspire you because a lot of times, the greatest inspiration is from left field. It's, it's not always right in front of you. 
I think people become so tunnel vision that they can't think out of the box because they don't look out of the box. That's the only way to grow. It is sometimes looking elsewhere. I fished with an old man who taught me a phrase called fishing the birds. The idea is to look in the water where you put your line is not the way to get a hint where the good fishing is. The birds can see from above, you know, like when you see them dive into the water or whatever, he takes the boat over where he sees the birds. Right. He's looking at a counterintuitive place. So, I mean, that's an analogy for what you're saying there is you don't know. And you might be interested in being an actor or being a director, but when you get involved in the theater arts, then you see what lighting design or sound design or choreography. There are so many parts of it that you might realize you have an affinity for being a costume designer or you have an affinity for being a conductor. And really, those aren't usually the first choice jobs. They're because you get into the territory of theater that you begin to find the things that you love or are good at or that there's a need for. Many great stage managers I know were actors first and they didn't get enough acting jobs and they needed revenue. So they learned the organization skills of a stage manager. Absolutely. And boy, to have a good stage manager is like gold (laughs) because they are the nuts and bolts. They can pull it all together for you and fill your needs and from not just your needs, but from all different departments. It's a wonderful, interesting area of work, stage management, I think. Yeah. I mean, believe me, they've saved my life many a time Mm -hmm. when putting together a rehearsal schedule or collecting actors' information or taking care of something with a union. I can't know everything and don't really love the administrative part of it. But when you have a really organized person who knows when to take the breaks and what to do, how to get the truck delivered and everything, logistics, you rely on them so much. They have their own symphony. (laughs) It's a symphony, really. (laughs) Thank you for investing the time to introduce me a little bit more to what you do. And I I would encourage folks to go to your website. It's called Palette of Choreography, right? Right. Sarah Kawahara's website is palletofchoreography.com. And you can see a little bit more of her history and her work and the list of many shows she's worked on. It's going to be really fun to see the next chapter for you and your family as everybody continues to shine. Thanks so much, Pat. This was really fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot fun as in cross your T's and dot your butt. Ciao for now. Stare